Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you are the highlight of my week, I tell you. Good to see you. We want to spend a little bit of time today talking about the subject of encouragement. Now, that may sound kind of, kind of sissy. It may sound a little generic, but I tell you what I truly believe. I think one of the things that God is doing in the midst of his people is he is calling us to realize, thank you, he's calling us to realize that um, in, a, in a culture of Christianity, especially Pentecostal Christianity, we're in a culture of, in, in charismatic Christianity, we're in a culture of wanting a new word. I had a, a friend that was very well known in the prophetic community, and uh, he talked about the most frustrating thing in the way God used him was that there was such a lack of appetite for the Word of God. People wanted a word. They wanted a blessing. He said, I know what it's like to have people painfully sit through the preaching of the Word to line up and stand in line for an hour to get a word. And if they didn't get a word, they would ambush me, was his word, in the parking lot while I was trying to leave to get a word from the Lord. Now, loved ones, don't misunderstand me. We believe in the prophetic message. We believe in prophetic blessing. We believe in individual words from the Lord. Uh, the, we believe those things can occur. But we believe, I believe, that what God is doing right now is letting us know that we have come to a place of learning. Now, hear me. We have come to a place of learning. I believe this is true at this church. I believe it's true in the Christian world in general. And it is perhaps the biggest single challenge that Pentecostal and charismatic churches have ever faced. We have come to a place of learning where even though God will continue to lead us and continue to teach us, we need to stop stuffing ourselves with new information we need to start obeying what we have learned. We need to understand that the average, of course, you're all above average, so I don't even know who this would apply to, um, but the average believer in our churches is educated far beyond their level of obedience. And we have just been given stuff and given stuff and given stuff. And it's been the grace and mercy of the Lord. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. But God gives us stuff in order for us to respond to the stuff. Moses was a great man for several reasons. But one of the main reasons, please hear me is that there was a phrase used of Moses over and over again, and it says that Moses came out of the mountain and did what God showed him in the mountain exactly. And what we want to be sure of, you guys still with me? What we want to be sure of is that what God has shown us, what God has given us, what God has taught us in our walk with him, we want to be sure that we have just not collected information and recorded revelation. We want to be sure that we are walking in obedience 
to what he has shown us. That is why one of the things God is doing in Christian life, and I think in other churches uh, in this era, in this day and age, is he's bringing us back to our roots. Another way of saying it is back to our foundation. He's bringing us back to the basics. And he's beginning to, to really reduce some of the stuff that we have received through the years. And we realize that he oftentimes is focusing on the very bare essentials. Sometimes going back to the very foundation, 614 approximately commandments were given to the people of God in the Old Testament. And what Jesus asked them about is what are the two greatest commandments? What are the two greatest commandments? He was talking to people that were excellent in dividing up leaves of mint for an offering. He was talking about people that were so legalistic that um, they said that you can't even, I mean, this is literally true, you can't even eat an egg laid on the Sabbath day because the hen was working. This, this was really the law of the, of the Pharisees. If you were plagued by a flea on the Sabbath day, you could not scratch because that constituted hunting. And Jesus says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures. And because you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. And I'm here to tell you the cry of my heart is that the average charismatic Christian today, again, you're all above average, but the average charismatic Christian today, the average Pentecostal Christian today is so interested in power, in formulas, in miracles, in making my life easy. We, we come, we've come to the place where because we prefer words, we have neglected the word. And because we've neglected the word, we don't know the scriptures. And the horrible side effect is we don't know the power of God. And if we want to see the power of God, we've got to get back to the most basic essentials that are in the word of God. That's why the Lord said, what are these two great commandments? He says, number one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then he went to number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Two of the most difficult things to do. Jesus uh, or, or John would ask the question. He said, how can you love God whom you've not seen if you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? Now, he wasn't saying it's impossible but what he was saying is this, to really walk in what God intended, we need to realize that everything we're called to do has to be a work of the supernatural. It has to be a work of the Spirit. Um, we can't know God except by the work of the Holy Spirit. And for us to love one whom we've never seen, John was in amazement of it. He said, and Having never seen him, as another passage, having never seen him, you love him. That was a work of the Spirit, he was saying. You've never seen him. Most of that generation had not. Now, John had, but he said, this is a work of the Spirit, that one you have never seen, you so love. And he says that we are, 
echoing the words of Jesus to love our neighbor as ourselves. That tells me, number one, it's supernatural. It tells me, number two, we've got to work at it. We've got to work at loving God because we are working above sea level, not S-E-A level, but S-E-E level. And we've got to work at loving our neighbor because they don't always cooperate with us. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's a different story. That's not in the Bible, but it ought to be. I am, uh, every place I turn in the scripture these days, I'm seeing God showing us afresh and anew. And this is an old cliche, it's overworked cliche, but it's really true. He's teaching us that life does not consist of what happens to us, but what happens in us. He's showing us that our reaction and our response is the big question today. The biggest question we're facing today is how will we respond to what life deals with us? I just read a few weeks ago the story of Joseph and I was captivated by it. I would read it and it was like it was a new story coming off the page. And I was sitting there just in, in awe of God. What are the odds what are the odds of you reuniting Joseph with his brothers? What are the odds of them selling him to a caravan that was headed to just the right place in Egypt? Lord, what are the odds of all of this working out? And as I looked at the miraculous intervention of God, I tell you what I came away from the story realizing to be the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle was the absence of bitterness in the life of Joseph. Joseph went through treatment that should have sent him to lifelong counseling. Joseph should have been on medication. I'm not saying that to make fun of those of us that need counseling or on medication. I'm saying you know what it's like to deal with that kind of treachery and betrayal and hurt. And the amazing thing is that Joseph had not a shred of bitterness. Now we know why that happened. This is a sermon in itself. But he, it's revealed in the name of his two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, the, 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 the second son, his name meant fruitful. And he explained why. He says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Isn't that what we all want? When we look at life, we look at the affliction, we look at the difficulty, we want to say, God has made me fruitful. And we all want to have a child named Fruitful. But Joseph understood something that few Pentecostals have grasped, and it is this. His first child was named Forget. And what that meant was, God has made me forget. And the word doesn't mean Oh, I can't remember. The word means I have laid aside. I have laid aside the sorrow and the pain and the suffering of my life. Um, and, and God has brought me as a result to a place of blessing. Uh, loved ones, that's why when God tells us so many stories, we will find him bringing us back to the foundation that's what he did with Job. Now, Job is out of style today. 
and many Pentecostal and charismatic circles because we can't answer the mysteries of Job. Um, I, was, I was, from my earliest days, said that Job was about why do the righteous suffer. That question is, is neither asked nor answered in the book of Job. We even view Job as give me an answer and there are no answers. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it's amazing to me that God keeps from the very beginning bringing us back to basics. And this idea of Job's story is about encouragement and about suffering and how do we relate to one another? Do you know I said something last week? Somebody said, I don't agree with you, Pastor. And I got their permission to share this. They said, you said, God, that the devil would rather start a church fight than to sell a warehouse full of drugs. My family's been touched by drugs. I just don't agree with that. And I said, I understand why you would say that. But I want to tell you, if the enemy can start a fight between brothers and sisters, far more damage will be done than the drug trade in Colombia. Because it breaks down the root, the core, the fabric of the church itself. I want you to hear me. The prophet Isaiah put it this way. He said, if you want a real move of God, if you want to understand what real spiritual discipline is, one of the things he said do is withdraw the pointing finger. Withdraw the accusation. Because whenever you start pointing the finger, whenever you start living in accusation, you have opened the door to the enemy. You say, well, what if I'm right? It doesn't have anything to do with you being right. It has to do with dwelling in unity. And part of dwelling in unity, by the way, unity does not mean we all say the same thing or, or that we all see something the same way. But when we differ, we differ in love and compassion and kindness. See, generally speaking, generally speaking, now this is such a politically charged statement, I shouldn't even be saying it today, but generally speaking, the husband is stronger than the wife. But when the wife is unable to lift something, the husband doesn't say, you little puny so-and-so. I should have married a girl fed on cornbread and strong and healthy. No, what does he do? He realizes that generally speaking, husbands are stronger than wives. So what does he do? He takes up what the wife can't. That's unity. Man doesn't want to marry another man in spite of cultural beliefs. He wants to marry someone who's different. And that's called unity. And to the degree, you're, you are so tense. I see some of you reaching in for medication right now. <laughs> But what, what God is trying to get us to understand is that unity is not the same as uniformity. And because we dwell in unity, that in and of itself means people are different. And what that means is that we withdraw the finger because they may not have our strengths. We may not, you may not have our strengths. So let's take a fresh look at Encouragement 101. And what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about this idea of suffering just briefly. But more than the idea of suffering, I want to talk to you about how important it is for us to learn to serve one another. Because I'll tell you, the greatest test Christian life will pass or need to pass in the coming days is not who has the most fire is not who has the right method. 
who has the right discipline. The thing that the church must pass in the days ahead is how deeply can we love one another. Now I know it sounds hokey, but that's one of the final most difficult tests. How much can we love one another? And we'll find ourselves constantly judgmental if we don't learn that lesson. We'll find ourselves constantly criticizing if we don't find that answer. We'll find ourselves eventually dismissed by our brothers and sisters because nobody wants to live in that negativity that's born from a, from a driven for perfection kind of a mindset. There was a man, it's a long text today, but just bear with me. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Um, and by the way, we know that this story took place at least in the time of Abraham, probably earlier. Um, we know that because of the names of the people groups and the units of money that were described. They were, they were unique to that period of time. Now, it's, a, it's about in the middle of the Old Testament, but that it's not there chronologically. It's there because it's wisdom literature. But the story of Job, other than Genesis 1 through 6, um, may very well be the earliest story we have in the Bible. Okay? Um, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, of each one on his day. Boy, I love this. Family meals. You know, every, they just rotated from house to house. They were a close-knit family, a loving family. And they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This God, Job did continually. In Pentecostal and charismatic circles, this has been pronounced as unbelief in Job's heart. He's just worried that his children might have sinned. Um, that is not the context of Scripture. That is not remotely the meaning of this verse. It was given to show how Job feared God and prayed for his children as a godly man would do. And he said, even when I'm not with them, I'm going to be praying for them. Okay? Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Sons of God does not always mean angels, but there are places it apparently does. This is one of them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I've always been afraid that the devil would bring me up to God. But God brings Job up to the devil. That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God or Job fear God for no reason? See, there's the accusation of the enemy. Yeah, he serves you, but there's a reason that he serves you. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The core in this 
perhaps one of the earliest stories of the Bible is this. Satan says it's unthinkable that a man will serve God for any other reason other than God blesses him. Remove the blessing, he will curse you. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down um, the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now forget the sheep, forget the cattle, forget the herds. He's lost ten of his children and, and, and their spouses. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That tells you something about an amazing man. I, I don't even know how to process his loss. But in all of it, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> um, on the earth and walking <clears throat> up and down upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him? In all the earth a blameless and upright man. Verse 4, Satan answered and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. See, he wants to up the ante. Um, I think Satan made a couple of mistakes. Number one, don't assume that a man's own body means more to him than his children. So Satan's logic begins to break down already. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with, a lo with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Scholars say this sounds like a black leprosy. It was the most destructive, the most invasive. You would end up losing eyelids and lips and nose and ears and fingers and toes and eventually the limbs themselves. 
from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I don't know if I don't know that Job's wife was a bad guy, bad gal here. It, it could have been she loved her husband and was saying, Get out of this. Get out of this. And, and a lot of scholars agree with this idea that she was saying, Job, you can trust God. Just cross the line and let him kill you. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, one of the smallest men in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar, you'll get it later, Zophar, the Naamathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. There's a couple other passages that are just there for your reference. Now let me give you four disclaimers very quickly, four statements. Um, I've, I've mentioned the first one briefly. It has been said the theme of Job is why do the righteous suffer? However, as I've said, that question is neither asked nor answered in Job. It's alluded to uh, in the conversation, but it's not answered. The issue was whether a person could and would serve God when life is unfair. You need to understand this. There are as many whys at the end of the book as there are at the beginning of the book. You say, no, 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 we know what happened. God, the devil came to God twice. We know that. And eventually Job would know that. But we don't know when. We don't know when that was made clear to Job. The second disclaimer that I want to give you is that Job was not perfect, nor were some of his reactions to life or to his friends. But understand this, Job got a passing grade. Have you ever been through a class that was so tough that you said, C's are my friends? You got it. <laughs> Passing grade. Number three, his friends picked up on Job's tendency. Now, Job, Job stumbled. He had a tendency to blame his problems on injustice, and there's a lot of injustice in the world. He blamed it on insensitivity of his friends. And loved ones, there will be a time when you need a word or you need a touch or you need a hug. And that's the exact opposite of what you get from your friends, insensitivity. Or even inscrutability. There were, there were questions that could not be answered. As, as, as one theologian said, he said, Job tried with all of his effort, but he never could unscrew the inscrutable. He never could figure out what was 
going on. But his friends piled on Job when he was at one of the lowest places imaginable. That's why when people go through a tough time, they tend to pull away from church is not because we do anything wrong necessarily, but the probability is they've been done wrong by friends. And they're afraid to open their hearts um, and be vulnerable to friends, whether it's in church or work or wherever it is. And number four, we need to understand this. We do not know how long it was before God revealed the truths of the test to Job. Now, we assume that he did because it's part of the narrative. But we assume, and I think rightly so, that Job did not understand why all of this happened until long after he had passed the test and prayed for his friends and received the blessing of the Lord. Now, here's the story. Uh, other than the part we just read, first couple of chapters, the account begins with Job's lament. Don't get me wrong, Job, Job was not stoic. He, he, he would say things eventually like it would, would, I curse the day I was born. It would be better had I never seen the light of day. Now he defaulted to worship because sometimes pain is so difficult. That's all you can do is default to worship. That's not cowardice. That's not naivete. That's not a simpleton's mind. A, a wise person realizes that sometimes suffering is so great that it is beyond explanation and it is beyond understanding. The back and forth between Job and his friends lasts from chapter 4 until chapter 37. Now, in chapter 38, God says, I've had all this I can take. And God begins to speak in chapter 38 and 39 and 40 and 41. And God puts everything in perspective. God vindicates Job, but we still don't know the whys. And in chapter 42, Job repents. Job prays for his friends who were also told to repent. And um, God began to bless him with double the number of herds. And, um, and everything that he had was doubled. And he had another 10 children. Now God didn't give him 20 children. Because even though this is hard theology for us to grasp at this point in Job... Um, the Old Testament saints understood that when a loved one goes by way of the grave, they're not lost to us. So God did double his children, but only by replacing them because there were 10 in the presence of the Lord and 10 now with Job. Now let's be sure we understand Job. This is number three on your outline. He was a man righteous on a par with Noah and Daniel. Um, you look at the passages that I included Noah, Daniel, and Job are considered men of the same moral caliber. He was brought to the forefront by the Lord himself. You know, I, I, can, I can envision, now, now this isn't the way it happens, but I can envision the devil saying, Lord God, have you considered your servant Stephen? And I, my, my mindset goes to the Lord saying, Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. I don't believe he treats us that way. But Job was brought to the attention of the devil. I tell you what I believe about Job. He was a special target of hell. 
specifically targeted by Satan himself, a realm few of us have ever traveled. Loved ones, I know what it's like to be attacked by the devil. I know what it's like to be the focus of the devil's attention. But I don't believe I've ever been the direct attention of Satan. I've, 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 I'm not worthy. Boy, that sounds like I'm giving him worth. I'm, I'm not important enough, in my opinion, to be warranting the, the attention of the devil himself, of Satan himself. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm a nobody that's just relegated to demons and, and church members and neighbors that I've had, you know. <laughs> Guys, you, you know I'm teasing. I'm just trying to lighten you up. I'm, I'm just trying to lighten you up. You know, you know I love you. I'm, I'm just playing. But I think you understand what I'm trying to make. What I'm trying to say is that he was, he was in a... There's Jesus and who knows how few others have been the direct attack of Satan himself. Job was like that. Now let's look at his friends. They come to him and it was a great journey to come. They did three things right. Now remember, we're talking about not only a man suffering, but how do we help people that suffer? What did they do right? Number one, they came to him. They came to him. I remember someone saying to a friend of mine, I just have felt so bad for what you're going through, I, I almost called. And I, I know what that person was saying. They were saying, we didn't want to intrude. And he, and he said, I almost called. And when that phone call was over, my friend said to me, oh, I wish they had called. That was, that was what I needed. So they came to him. Number two, they wept with him. They knew that, as Spurgeon said, tears are liquid prayer. And sometimes there's nothing better to do than to weep with those that weep. And number three, this shows their, really the depth of their understanding. They didn't speak for seven days. They realized that there's a place for silence as well as words. Now, that's good. But something happened because by the time we get a little over two-thirds through the book, this is what Job says about his friends. I've heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and shake my head at you. The Easy Steve version says I could point my finger at you. I could send an email to you. I could talk about you at Starbucks. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. Instead, I suffer if I defend myself and I suffer no less if I refuse to speak. Now what happened? What happened? Let's wrap this up by saying what they did wrong. This is what we want to avoid. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The names don't mean a lot to us. They're not the kinds of names we give our children usually because it's, it's, it's from a Semitic language. It's from another culture. 
Eliphaz. His approach is, as I have seen. Imagine losing your family and everything that you own and being given a terminal diagnosis by the physician. And not only are you going to die, it's going to be a terrible degenerative disease. And someone sits to you and says, well, let me tell you what I've seen. The comfort of Eliphaz is based on what he has experienced himself. He tries to interpret and understand what cannot be interpreted and understood from the prism of his own experience. That's not the kind of comfort you need. Stop and think, he says. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanish in a blast of his anger. Life has taught me that you deserve this. Loved ones, when you're going to someone who's hurting, be slow to offer your pithy observations from life. Be slow to say, I understand what you don't. He was saying, Job, you, you have, you've won all these Chamber of Commerce awards, but everybody knows what the real you is like. This doesn't happen to men that are truly innocent. But you have to ask the question, was Job really that bad? And the answer is an emphatic no. He was really that good. He was a faultless man. So the sheen, uh, scene shifts to Bildad. Little fella sitting around the fire. He says, God does not pervert justice. Now the first one says, what I have seen, you deserve this. What Bildad says, don't get mad at God. When God does something like this, it's for a reason. His comfort is based on the idea that all our trouble is the result of sin. That is a particularly nefarious evil doctrine that has wormed its way into Pentecostal and especially charismatic doctrine. When we don't get what we have demanded, it's because there must be sin in our life or a lack of faith. This is what Bildad said. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied to Job, How long do you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have sinned against Him, so their punishment was well deserved. But if you pray to God and seek the favor of the Almighty, in other words, if you can just get your faith right, and if you are pure and live with integrity, He will surely rise up and restore your happy home. But this that happens to you, the same happens to all who forget God. The hopes of the godless evaporate. But look, God will not reject a person of integrity, nor will he lend a hand to the wicked. He says, God always takes care of his children. The righteous do not suffer. Therefore, there must be something wicked in your life for you to experience this. And then just when he's got his foot on Job's throat... He says, God will not afflict a, rich, a righteous man. Can you imagine hearing this? And your children died because they were guilty too. That had to have been a knife in the soul of this man. When you bring a man's children, when you bring a woman's children 
into your theological curses, that ups the ante. You're lucky you walk away alive. And I'm not saying this to, for any, I'm just trying to tell you the way this works. One of the darkest days of my life, my wife was unable to travel. She's in a, the town in which we lived taking care of our newborn baby that was just a few days old. I have flown with the body of that newborn baby's twin to bury her in our hometown. One baby lives. We thank God for that. One baby stillborn. We, we, we looked at each other. I'm holding the dead baby. She's holding the living baby. And what do we do? Do we celebrate life or do we mourn death? We, we didn't know what to do. And as I was in Florida burying our little one at our Sunday night service in our church, a man stood up in the altar as the church was called to pray for us and said, this is just the beginning of what God, one person said allow, one person said do. This is just the beginning of what God will allow or what God will do to this man because of his sin. I don't know if I was hurt more with what he said or that the church didn't tie him up and drag him behind a pickup truck. No, I'm teasing. Barely. When I heard about that, they didn't tell me about it for weeks, but when I heard about it, my mind went to Bildad. This child must have done something wrong or you have done something wrong because God doesn't pervert justice. Well, loved ones, I agree, and you need to understand God doesn't pervert justice. A man reaps what he sows. I know all of that, but I also know that we don't understand what goes on behind the veil of this life. To everyone that's lost a child, whether it's a baby or an adult, you carry a burden, you carry suffering, you carry a load that probably no one can understand who hasn't been through that. And it could be that they don't even understand it because each relationship, each child, each situation is different. So far... Be assured of this. His comfort is based on an inflated sense of his own wisdom and judgmentalism. If only he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, listen to me. God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. And it's interesting to me that Zophar says, we just have to have wisdom. And if you had wisdom, you could understand. And Zophar is the youngest, the least experienced in life. He's still wet behind the ears. But his catchphrase is, now understand this. Know this. Reminds me of something a preacher said, arrogance is ugly, particularly among the young. And Zophar was a man who lacked the experience to understand much of anything. But he came to this conclusion. You can be sure of one thing. Your suffering is less than you deserve. You say, God, that's no wonder Job said what he did about his friends. 
Now we know the end of the story. Job intervenes, or excuse me, God intervenes. He vindicates Job, but now he corrects Job for his, his self-pity and for his accusation of his friends. But God really calls the friends to task. He says, you have been worthless in this endeavor and they have to repent. And Job is told by God, pray for these that have hurt you. That's a sermon in and of itself. But when you're hurting, you've got to pray for those that have hurt you. At some point, you may not be there right away, but rest assured it's on the docket. And then God restored. But what do we learn? What do we take away? Two things, or two perspectives, I guess I should say. If you are the one suffering, let me give you four things that I think are important. Number one, be sure to express and process your grief. There is nothing strong about withholding grief. There is nothing smart about withholding grief. Um, I, I, I constantly hear something like this. I, I, you hear somebody at the, at the death of a child or the death of a parent or the death of a spouse. They wail. They wail. And inevitably somebody says, well, they're not handling this well. No, I think they're handling it beautifully. There are some things worth wailing over. There are some things worth weeping over. There are some things sitting down with a friend and saying, I don't understand. There are some things when a friend says, are you okay? It's all right to say, no, I'm not okay. Express your grief and process your grief. Here's number two. If you're suffering, don't be angry at your friend's silence. You say, well, I, but I need them. I, I know, but they are walking a field of landmines. And sometimes their silence is they don't want to say the wrong thing. So they'll just wait. Understand that their silence is not their lack of caring. Number three, remember that the friends who are trying to comfort you don't understand what's happening any more than you do. You're not the only one bewildered. They're bewildered. And what we learned from, from Bildad and, and, uh, and his two friends speaking to Job, what we learn is that sometimes we don't need to try to explain something that's unexplainable. We just need to talk. And number four, be thankful for their effort, even if it's flawed. I'm, I'm not pointing at anyone. I would never want to exacerbate anyone's grief. But I see it over and over again through the years, through the decades. Um, people in a moment of grief end up leaving the church because somebody says, the church didn't help me enough. The church didn't comfort me enough. The pastor didn't understand me enough. And loved ones, sometimes, I, I know that sometimes it's best for somebody to leave only because there are so many memories associated with a place that they want to get a fresh start. I understand that. There's nothing wrong with that. But be thankful for the effort of your friends, even if it's flawed. Nobody knows how to comfort you perfectly. But what if I'm the comforter? 
be slow to try to explain someone else's grief. It doesn't mean you don't have insight. And it doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with saying, I think I understand. I've been through this myself. But say it with wisdom. Say it with a sense of timing. I was a young pastor. Probably, see, I must have been 26 years old. I don't even know if my precious wife will remember this. But we had a, a, a lady in our church. They had, just, they had come in from a different background altogether. They were just a breath of fresh air to our church. And they lost a very dear loved one unexpectedly. It was a gut-wrenching tragedy. And... Uh, she was unlike anybody else in that church because I'm, I, I'm a hugger. If you'll let me, I'll hug you. And I know some people that have disjointed themselves to not hug. I know that. But, I, I even, but in those days, I tried not to hug everybody because I didn't know if they wanted to be hugged or what. So our traditional greeting was I'd shake hands. Hello, Brother Chitty. Hello, Sister so-and-so. You know, This lady came in and found life in the Spirit. And her greeting to me, there was nothing sensual. There was nothing inappropriate. It was never done in private. My wife was standing right by me. She'd always give me a, a kiss on the cheek right here. And I didn't know what to do with it. I, 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 con I confessed infidelity to my wife. <laughs> and she said, oh, she doesn't mean anything by it. But that was just from Sunday to Sunday. And when she experienced this death, I said, oh, Lord. She wasn't that much older than us. Probably, I'm guessing, maybe mid-30s. And uh, Ramona and I went over there. Pastor Tommy was on my staff then. He went with me. And I sat there, and I had the best explanation imaginable for what she was going through. And it was just thick with emotion, and I started talking and this is what she said. Now, you got to remember, there's nothing inappropriate about this. Ramona was sitting right there by me or across the room. I don't remember. She was in the room anyway. And this lady that gave me a kiss on the cheek every Sunday, I sat down by her and I took her hand and I tried to explain to her the mysteries of death and sudden death and unexplained grief. And she said, Pastor, I just need, she called me Pastor. Only person in church called me Pastor. She said, Pastor, I just need you to do two things. And I said, okay, I whatever it is you need. I thought maybe she needs me to explain more. She said, number one, would you just put your arm around me? And I said, sure. And then she looked at me and, and, and gave me her traditional kiss on the cheek and she said, would you please just shut up? <laughs> and I, the fount of wisdom is being rebuked. She, she apologized for it later. Her, her husband apologized when we left the room. He said, we don't usually tell pastors just to shut up. But when she talked to me later, she said this. She said, week after week, you teach me about God. You've put a reservoir of faith in my heart. I don't need a pep talk. I just need somebody to hold me. So be slow to try to explain someone else's grief. The time may come. Number two, be willing to be misunderstood or even blamed for a while. 
when people have suffered grief, I've been given questions that can't be answered. And when I know what it's like, you do too, to offer comfort that is rejected categorically. Even foolish statements by the person that's hurting. That leads me to the third thing. <laughs> be willing to let your friends who suffer be human. I have found that the most devout Christians will often say or do things they don't mean. And it will pass. And you need to let them be human. Now, Pastor, what do we do with this? Loved ones, I want you to understand God has enrolled every one of you. You may not have gotten a letter yet, but God has enrolled every member of the Christian Life family in a graduate school. It's a graduate school of suffering, and He's teaching us how to respond while we're suffering and how to help those who are suffering. I know this sounds, it can sound harsh. I don't mean it to. It can sound judgmental. I don't mean it to. And God had to work me through this before I could understand how to even begin to articulate it. But God is trimming the fat out of our lives. And if you're going to advance, can I tell you what you need to do? Just please shut up. Shut up trying to judge everyone. Shut up trying to judge yourself. Shut up trying to figure out all the mysteries of life. We're still pilgrims. And we're still looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And we are doing everything in our power to make this city our home. So we're trying to make this city have no question marks, have no mystery. We're still trying to make this city be occupied by people that are faultless and just like me. And loved ones, we are, we, are, we are passing one of the final tests. Can we dwell in the city that God has given us live with each other, loving each other as ourselves, loving God with all of our heart while keeping in mind there's a better city coming. This isn't for the neighborhood. This isn't for any other church. This is for us. This is for family talk. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Father, this is one of those messages you give me where I don't have an altar call with it. But I believe you're trying to help us. I believe you're trimming this church. I, I hope that trimming doesn't involve people. That's not what I'm talking about. But you're trimming what we've tried to bring in and make a part of our expression. God, forgive us. God, thank you that a church member that loved me more than life was able to say, I need your hug, but I might not need your words right now. Father, help us to learn what Job's friends did right and help us to shun what they did wrong. In Jesus' name.
Would you stand with me, please, as we're dismissed today? And our ministry teams are coming to the altar area. They're here to pray for you if you are sick and you need to be anointed and prayed for. They're here to pray for you if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you have questions about following Him, I want to tell you there are men and women that will be up here at the front and they know how to pray with you. They know how to minister to you. There's no need to leave today not sure of your relationship with God. These ministry teams would love to pray for you. If you are here and you just say, Pastor, I just, I, I want to, Pastor, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. I, I, I want to help people. Can I tell you this? What God may be doing to help you get started in your graduate program, God may put a name or two on your heart. And you'd say, Pastor, in the next two or three weeks, I'm going to ask God to help me know how to help those people. Maybe I've stayed away because I'm clueless. Maybe I've not said anything because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But Pastor, I, I, I want to remember that sometimes they just need us to come. Sometimes they just need us to be with them. Sometimes they just need us to, to listen but Father, with your help, you're bringing us through this school because you want this to be a house of healing. Can I tell you what the Lord spoke to me, loved ones? I don't say this arrogantly. The Lord spoke to me and said, you have been praying for decades for this to be a house of healing, but you've prayed amiss. And naturally, I, I was baffled. I've prayed amiss. You've prayed for this to be a house of miraculous healing. And he said, I want that to happen. But much healing is a healing process. Is a recovery from wounds. A recovery from scars. And a ministry and a house that only focuses on miraculous healing knows nothing about the deeper healing that's needed. So I'm asking him for both. I'm asking him for both. If you need to go, then go with the blessing of the Lord today. I love you so much. Don't forget our groups tonight, prayer meeting at 6 over in, in Brown Chapel. But if you have time and you want to just bring this hurting world to the Lord, maybe it's your hurting world, maybe it's the hurting world around you. If you want to say, Lord, make me an instrument of your healing you might want to just spend some time with the worship team as they lead us into the Lord's presence. I love you. God bless you. Thank you for being here. God bless you.